3, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 978 in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is describing this radical transformation that has happened to Gentiles who once were alienated from God, strangers to God's covenants and promises. They've been, they've been saved by the grace of God and they've been saved to a completely changed life. So one of the things that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 20, it reads like this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. You don't live like that anymore. You're a changed person. You've been changed by God's grace. Stop living in your former manner of life. That's a big change in Ephesians. He's described what God has done in the first three chapters. Now he's describing how it ought to be reflected in your life. And you don't live like a Gentile. Paul communicates the same basic idea and concept when he writes to the Corinthians this way. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul has experienced this new transformation himself on the Damascus Road. He's, his goal in life was to destroy the church, to persecute the church, eliminate Christianity off the face of the earth. And he is struck down on that Damascus Road, and he is converted, and Christ is his Lord and Savior. And then it tells me in Acts chapter 9, where this is recorded, it says, and immediately he began preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Everything changed for Paul. The old things were gone. Where's the old? The old's passed away. The new has come. But the most important thing in all of this, this scenario that Paul is painting, whether it's what he's writing to the Ephesians or what it's writing to the Corinthians, isn't the concept of a new creation. The most important thing about that new creation is this relationship being in Christ. Because there is no new new creation apart from being in Christ. That's where it starts. And so if I look at these few verses, not really in context because we don't have time for all of that, but Paul is saying there was a time where I lived my life and I decided what I thought of Christ. Just like everybody in America that's heard the name thinks something about him. I mean, Jesus asked his own disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist resurrected. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Jesus was approached. Good teacher. Jesus was approached. Uh, You're somebody who speaks for God. You're a prophet. And then Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say I am? Everybody has an idea of who he is. Paul had an idea. I once regarded Christ in the flesh. I had my opinion like everybody else had. And Paul found out on that Damascus road that in no universe is what we think about Christ as important as what Christ thinks about us. 
And if we are not in him, all is lost. All is lost. We don't give significance to Christ. We don't give meaning to Christ, value to Christ. He gives meaning to us. He gives value to us. He gives significance to us. Our life, if it is not rooted in him, is in vain. It is striving after the wind to no good end and no good purpose. And Paul found that out on that Damascus road. And what he's saying was true of him is what he's contending ought to be true of every person who is in Christ. The way you get in Christ is by faith. Where you repent of your sin and your alleged good works, your alleged righteousness, and you ask Christ to take away your sins by virtue of his death on a cross that pays and satisfies every demand of justice on your behalf. Christ bears your sin. He communicates to you. He imparts to you his righteousness. You are in Christ. And the world has changed. Okay. Paul describes these new behaviors in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. That's where we're at. That's where we'll be pushing forward. And all of this, I hopefully, will make a little bit more sense why we won't sing verse 3 of This Is My Father's World until I get through this. Starts off like this. Paul says in verse 25, a verse we handled or touched on a couple weeks ago, Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's, that's who you were, that's not who you are. Having put that away, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Then he goes on to say, be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, last week I contended or I advocated for the position that Paul is actually commanding a righteous anger. Uh, it's touchy business. It's volatile because anger is so easily corrosive and destructive even to the person but I think there really is a command for righteous anger rooted in there. I'm going to summarize just a couple key points. Anger originates from three principal sources. That is mistreatment or sin or injustice against either myself, against others, or against God. Now, God can't be mistreated. He can be disrespected. He can be sinned against, but God is not a man that he is affected by what people say about him or do believe or don't believe about him. I love some verses in Job where God says, if you are righteous, what is that to me? God is no more God if we confess Christ as Lord and Savior. He's no less God if we don't. He's completely transcendent above who we are. And so that's reflected in all of this, but we do disrespect him. We can disrespect him. We can sin against him. And when God is sinned against, uh, sinned against by the likes of us, it ought to arouse a righteous anger if you're a Christian. I suggested to you last week that how Jesus responded to each one of those categories is a model for us. When Jesus was sinned against, when people mistreated Jesus... He disregarded it. He didn't say, you can't treat me that way. Don't you know who I am? I'm the son of God. If you don't, if you don't have faith in me, you will wind up in eternal punishment. 
Jesus didn't do that. When he was treated unjustly, when he was reviled, he opened not his mouth. He received that kind of mistreatment. He absorbed it. That's a model for what we ought to do when people disappoint us, mistreat us, sin against us. We don't have to fight against it. But Jesus did go to bat on behalf of others. There was a righteous anger in Christ when people were treated atrociously. And when God was blasphemed, he did have something to say. That's the righteous anger that I think Christians are called to observe. Thomas Secker, there's a, he was an archbishop of Canterbury, which is part of the Church of England. Uh, this is a long, hundreds of years ago. The quote's in your bulletin, so I'm going to show it on the screen as well. But uh, Thomas Secker said this, He that would be angry and sin not must not be angry with anything but sin. I think that's a pretty good quote. It's not angry over, over personal disappointment. My expectations haven't been met. Uh, you can't treat me that way. It's anger over sin. And you know, the first place to be angry is my own sin. Because I'm the worst sinner I know. Because I know my own thoughts. I know my own motivations. I don't know your thoughts. I don't know your motivations. You are your own worst sinner. Because you know something more of your heart than you know of anybody else's heart. And so if I'm going to be angry, one of the places I ought to be angry over is my own sin. I love, I didn't look it up and I should have. I know MacArthur has this great quote about what he's looking forward to in heaven most of all is that he will stop sinning. That he'll be done with that. Uh, Not the streets of gold. You know, not who am I going to see. You know, what am I going to do? but I'll be free from sinning. That's where you want to be. That's the anger against our own sin is where it starts. Anger against how other people are exploited for men's sin, for people's sin, treated unjustly, the way that God is treated in our culture and our society. We also looked at gentle and lowly, which there's copies of that on the table in the back. That's not just reserved for mothers. The candy is, but the books aren't. If you want a copy of Gentle and Lowly, they're available on the back floor or on the back table. And in there, he made the statement, compassion and anger rise and fall together. And I was really in, I love that quote. I love that part of the quote. The compassion and anger rise and fall together. They're not at two ends of the spectrum. It's not a seesaw. I'm angry. I lack compassion. Well, I'm more compassionate. Now I'm not angry. They rise and fall together. If you are compassionate, you will be angry about righteous things. If you are angry, it shows your compassion. It led me to this statement. It can be as much a sin not to find your temper as it can be a sin to lose your temper. Most of us recognize if you lose your temper, you've sinned. Most of us are more reluctant to acknowledge if we don't find our temper in such a time as this, we've also sinned. Because we live in a day and age where we are so, our culture is so shaking its fist at truth and God, it ought to make us angry in a righteous sense. Psalm 97 says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. 
He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 119 reads, I see the treacherous and I loathe them. Those who do not keep your word. And then probably the clearest psalm of all reads this way. Psalm 139, David says, Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I'm not going to find fault with David here writing this psalm. I think it's a righteous hatred. I'm not advocating that. Boy, that's a fine line. It's nuanced. But it's all over, especially the psalms. But it's evidenced in different places in Scripture. I did look up what Spurgeon said about what David said. Spurgeon said this. To love all men with benevolence is our duty. So start with that. To love all men with benevolence is our duty. But to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime. To hate a man for his own sake or for any evil done to us, would be wrong. But to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more nor less than an obligation. I think it would make for a fascinating discussion to talk about how do we balance what I think is advocated in Scripture about a righteous anger and Jesus's Also, words that are part of the category, part of the discussion, have to be love your enemy, love your enemy, to love your enemy. Not just love your neighbor, but love your enemies. How how does that all balance? I think it does, but it would be be a message in and of itself, which I don't have time for. So I'll just throw it out there to give you something to think about. Anger is a dangerous and volatile commodity. So what I've done is, in a sense, very imbalanced in that what I have done all of last week and then however long we are into this week, I've spent a lot of time talking about when you ought to be angry and it's righteous and it actually reflects something of the character of Christ. I've advocated for that. I'm arguing for that. I'm trying to defend that. But that's not why Paul wrote what he did in verses 26 and 27. His point isn't, come, he's, he's not trying to rouse up the Christians, like, come on, Christians, get angry about sin. I, I think that is kind of an assumption. And I think he is validating, there is a time to be angry, but really what Paul is doing in these verses, the emphasis is on the prohibitions of anger. Just like he said, don't lie, don't steal, don't sin in your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give an opportunity to the devil because of your anger. The emphasis in these verses really isn't on, come on, Christians, even though that's kind of what I've done, because I see the church as being kind of quiet in our day and age because it is so unpopular. And so what is being thrown out there is a liberal atheistic worldview and you don't want to have to stick out as a sore thumb and and rain on people's parade and invite their own scorn against you. So I am encouraging you to righteous anger, but I also need to encourage you regarding those prohibitions. Speaker's Bible. 
from the early 1900s. And let me, right before I have you read that, let me tell you, because I'm going to quote the Speaker's Bible a lot. The Speaker's Bible is, I don't know, they're probably 18 volumes I have on my shelf. Uh, They're basically sermons from the early 1900s. So call it 100 years ago. Some of them may be from the late 1800s. It's really not well documented. I would love to be able to tell you exactly who said it and what time period, but I can't. I know it's from 100 years plus ago, 100, maybe 120, 25, maybe 150 years ago. And one of the reasons why I like using the Speaker's Bible is because it tells me there's nothing new under the sun. The problems that we can identify in our culture right now in the 21st century, I can go back 100 years and they're talking about the same things. And I'm like, yeah, but it's worse now. Maybe it is and maybe it's just different. Maybe it's just a different color worse. And maybe if you go down 100 years in the future, if nothing changes, you know, they're going to look back and think we had it easy compared to what they're facing. I don't know exactly how all that plays out, but I love their perspective. It doesn't make it right that they wrote this 100 years ago because they had a problem with, uh, I would say, uh, there was a movement towards a socialistic worldview 100 years ago that didn't prevail And now it's kind of, there's a new groundswell of people advocating for socialism. Just to be clear, there is no government of man that is not abusive. There is no economic system that is going to solve our sin problems. Because they won't be solved by the White House or a political party or an economic system, no matter what system we have, it is failed and it is contaminated by our own sin. Uh, Winston Churchill said something like, uh, and I didn't look this up, but it's something very similar to, democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for every other form. Uh, They're all tainted by man's sin. So 1900s, Christian teaching on the subject, talking of anger, Christian teaching on the subject is very direct, but not always obeyed by those who profess to follow it. Indeed, it is rather humiliating to reflect how governance of temper is made a part of Christian living, and how easily it is assumed that irritability or stubbornness or hastiness of temper is not at vital variance with the spirit or command of Christ. Then he ends with, Familiar words are often taken for granted. What he's saying is this. You can tell it's 100 years ago because we write more simply. But 100 years ago, what he's saying is, oh, yeah, we know there's warnings not to, not to let anger consume you. We all know that you shouldn't let the sun go down on your wrath. And we all say, oh, that's not the kind of anger I have. We're very familiar with the prohibition, and we're very sure it applies to our neighbor rather than to us. And what he's saying is, you know, maybe just stop and think. Maybe we're guilty of of violating these prohibitions too. Speaker's Bible also says, the anger to which men are most prone is unrighteous. Even righteous anger must be controlled by the Spirit of Christ, lest it degenerate into personal hatred or provoke men to deeds unworthy of those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Anger of the right sort 
is a splendid stimulant of the moral forces, but it is only a stimulant. It does not nourish the soul. If all I do is have this feeling, this this anger within my soul, and it doesn't cause me to make things right, to take action, it's just throwing gas on a fire to no good end. A lot of noise, a lot of heat, a lot of light, but no real change. Anger, righteous anger, the right kind of anger, is meant to be a stimulant to get you to do what is right, given your sphere of influence, or where you might make an actual change. Speaker's Bible also says, To our jaundiced eyes, others are perverse and unreasonable, not ourselves. This works itself into a vicious circle. For the lack of perception that leads to anger is at the same time made greater by my anger. So my anger causes me to lose perspective. I see all the problems with you, and the more I see your problems, the angrier I get, which makes me see other problems with other people that much more, and I'm never looking at myself. I'm never examining my own heart. I don't see my own sin. And he's saying this is a terrible downward spiral where we are dismissing the prohibitions and the warnings because we see the sin in everybody else and we never see the log in our own eye. Speaker's Bible also says, a quick temper really incapacitates for sound judgment. Decisions are struck off at white heat without time to collect grounds or hear explanations. Then it takes a humbler spirit than most of us possess to reverse them once they are made. I mean, one of the things uh, I'm indebted to my dad for, and I've said this before, is my dad was very circumspect before he spoke. I tend to be that way, but not as good as my dad, because sometimes a situation will pop up, whether it's in the news or culture or life, and I, I reach a very quick judgment, because it seems so clear on the evidence. And then there's a proverb that says, one side of the story sounds great until you hear the other side of the story. You know, what just happened that's making the news? Pause and gain perspective. Hear the whole story before, before allowing your anger to be roused up and inflamed. Because maybe I don't know about the situation as well as I think I do. Benjamin Franklin, not a theologian, but he said, anger is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. Anger is not without a reason. Whatever you get angry for, I know you've got a reason for it. I do too. But even Benjamin Franklin said, your reason is probably not good. I've got a neighbor. Um, he doesn't actually mow his own grass. His dad comes over and mows it, which is kind of a weird situation. I don't think people my age should be mowing grass. But at any rate... Uh, if that dad can't start that lawnmower, I'm going to hear some words out of that man's mouth. And you know what? I also know from the son, when he has things not work out his way, those same words come out of his mouth. And it's like, I mean, does he have a reason for cussing? Well, the lawnmower won't start. That's a reason. Is it a good reason for that reaction? I don't think so. But I find it a lot easier to find fault with his anger than my anger. And I think couched in what the Bible teaches about anger is I should examine my anger more closely 
than what I do. I'm not a road raid person where I have concealed carry and can pull out a gun, but that's probably a good thing uh, because, I mean, people perturb me. They don't know how to drive. If they drive too fast, they're idiots, and if they drive too slow, they're idiots. They should be just like me because I drive perfectly, and I realize how stupid that is, right? <laughs> but my anger can be aroused just in driving a car. That's not justified. Uh, that's absurd. Most of our anger is aroused for not good reasons. So what are the dangers of anger? Why does Paul give us these warnings? Don't sin in your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give an opportunity to the devil. I'm going to summarize it this way. I, I can... I, I forgot the word be. I can be apt or I can... It's because I changed that word. <laughs> it's a long story. Uh, I am apt to become overly obsessed or preoccupied with what is wrong and with injustices, so much so that I forget the solution in the gospel. I forget what is right. So why does Paul give the warnings? Because Paul knows there are going to be injustices, mistreatment, and sin from sunup till sundown. And if you want to look for reasons to be angry, you always find reasons to be angry. But there's something more important than everything wrong. It's what is right about the gospel. It is what is right in Christ. It is what is right in a new creation. And if I'm so consumed by all the wrong things that nobody knows that I also believe in these wonderful transformative things in Christ, oh, what a mistake I've made. Uh, this is also, I mean, Ephesians, the first three chapters, like I, I think I told you back when we first started, if you love doctrine, you're going to love the first three chapters. And if you love, like, just tell me what I should do, just give me the, the practical thing, those first three chapters were tough. Now, if you love the doctrine and you don't want to know what to do, you're not going to like these next three chapters, because they are very practical, and they are very um, in your business, uh, what I'm about to say, like I kind of, I I was convicted as I thought about what I wanted to tell you because I know I fail in in some of these regards. I'm going to give you some examples, very personal in a way. You can take and there's nuance to this, by the way, as well. Where I think I need to be, the direction I'm going, the lines I need to draw are not going to be exactly the lines you draw, the safeguards you have. But you need to consider these things. You need to be thinking about these things. First of all, I would say the words that come out of my mouth. You know, I, uh, I'm around Christians a lot of the time. Uh, when I am playing pickleball, I'm with people that are mostly not Christians, which is only once a week or so now. Uh, when I bicycle, I'm really bicycling mostly by myself right now just because of the weather and whatever, but... I'll bicycle, I'll be with some people that aren't Christians. When I'm, when I'm with other people, what do they hear me say? At the end of the day, what do they hear me say? Like, okay, I think they know I'm a conservative in different areas. Uh, you know, I'm against big government. You know, I think, I mean, what they hear me say, do they hear hope in the gospel? Do they hear Christ is Lord? Do they hear... This is my father's world. 
I mean, if somebody wants to complain about taxes, I'm all over it. I can jump on that bandwagon so fast. Oh, I'm, I'm with you, brother. But am I only cursing the darkness and never celebrating the light? Because if I am, I think my anger is what is defining me rather than the gospel. I think the reason why Paul gives all these warnings is because our lives need to be more closely associated with the good news of the gospel than the sin of our culture. Second example, social media. Uh, I went back and looked at my social media. I don't post very much. I used to post like years ago, I would try to post something of interest almost every day, like five days a week. And eventually I got worn down and I don't do that anymore. So I don't post really not even once a week. But I, I went back and looked at my posts, like the most recent ones. Like, you know I'm against this whole conspiracy about the climate change. It's called weather, you know. I posted something about smaller government. You know, and then you go back a little bit further. I've got something about the Good Friday service. Sometimes I put something about Sunday, and I'm like, Phew, you know. <laughs> because if somebody looks at my social media and all they see it, are all these things I'm against, these things I'm raging against, and they never see the hope of the gospel, I don't think I'm paying attention to Paul's warnings about anger. I think the gospel ought to define who I am by what I say and by what I post. It doesn't mean what I posted about it's called weather. I don't think that was wrong for me. But if that's what I'm continually parading out there, I'm wondering what people get about who I am and what my values are and what I think is important. So I'll throw that out as a caution. A third area would be garbage in, garbage out. And by that I mean I realize it's very easy for me to take in garbage. And the more garbage I take in, the more I'm apt to spout it in social media and what I say and what I react to. And by that what I mean is I I gave up watching TV news years ago. Like I just doesn't mean it's wrong. You can watch TV news. But wherever you're getting your information, whether it's a blog, whether it's TV, whether it's radio, whether it's email, wherever you're getting your sources of information, you can let them consume you so that you're angry all the time. I know that's true, I think. I think it's true for most of us. I know it's true for me. I start off in the morning, I'm making my coffee. It takes me a while. While I'm making my coffee, I grind some beans. I'm really into the first cup of the day. After that, I can go cheap, but that first cup is a good cup of coffee. But while I'm making that coffee and I do a pour over, while I'm making that coffee, uh, I look at my Twitter feed. Ten minutes, maybe 15. I could, I could read Twitter all day if I had nothing better to do and if I was an idiot. Because not only could I read what everybody's posting, I could read what everybody says about what was posted. And, and the more I read that, the angrier I can get. And part of the reasons why I have encouraged you to be angry about the right things is because I spend 10 or 15 minutes reading Twitter. And I read some of what's happening in our culture that I really didn't realize was that bad. It's bad. Some of what is being pushed in our culture, it is abominable. It's about when you read about abominations in Leviticus. It is abominable. And I could read that all day. And it would be horrible for my soul. 
So be careful how much garbage you take in. Even though I think we need to be culturally aware, you've got to figure out what that is. But if it is consuming you so that you're more defined by your anger than the gospel, I think you've crossed a line. I think I've crossed a line. These statements, my anger can cause me to minimize the gospel and or my reliance upon God's providence. J. Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission in the 19th century. I realize you probably can't see those words. I will read them. He said, I am no longer anxious about anything as I realize the Lord is able to carry out his will and his will is mine. It makes no matter where he places me or how, that is rather for him to consider than for me. For in the easiest positions, he must give me his grace. And in the most difficult positions, his grace is sufficient. That's being focused on the gospel rather than the sin. So, my anger can cause me to minimize the gospel and or my reliance upon God's providence. And my anger over matters outside of my control may result in my overlooking or dismissing matters closer to home where I ought to take action. It's a lot easier to see all the problems in Washington or all the problems in Chicago or all the problems in California and not see the problems in my neighborhood where I could actually make a difference. I could actually speak to somebody about something that matters. Are there problems out there? Yes, there are. But are there problems in my neighborhood too? Unless everybody's a Christian. Actually, even if they are a Christian, there's still problems. And so I've alleviated myself of responsibility for situations that are close at home because I'm railing about the problems that I really have no control over. And with that, we have a good reason to sing verse 3. And we're going to sing the verse that I like best, rather than... God has a purpose in everything. All, all, every, every detail of life will bring glory to God. Every person will bring glory to God, either in His holiness and righteous. Well, actually, everybody. Some will experience the justice of God in bearing their own sin, and some will experience the grace of God in Christ bearing their sin for them. But all, every aspect of creation will bring glory, is there for a reason and brings glory to God. Uh, Augustine said something along the lines of, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's partly because Augustine didn't speak English and, and what he did speak is hard to understand. But the idea that uh, sin is not good. Christian, the church does not believe sin is good. But it must be good for sin to exist or it wouldn't. In God's economy, in God's plan and purpose, it must be good for sin to exist or it wouldn't. It's not good. And R.C. Sproul actually says some good thoughts too because sin is not a thing, it's the absence of a thing. Sin is like a, a hole in a garment. So it's the absence of what ought to be, but it serves a purpose in God's larger economy. So, somebody else? No. Hannah. Sure. So, you know, just being able to separate out. <laughs> you know, to separate those things well, out, though, be- give you peace. Yeah, yeah. 
Be glad Josh wasn't shaking his head, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a principle in Scripture, be faithful in small things. You know, start with myself and my very small sphere of influence. And if God wants to enlarge your sphere, glory be to God. But start in your small sphere. And, uh, there's also, you know, there's, I think some people, not to turn it into a political thing, but I think some people would say, you know, there's much more value in the local election than there is the national. You know? I'll say amen. There we go. <laughs> you know, and, and the local election is what a lot of people like, kind of like, ah, it's the local. It's where a few votes in a local election can really make a difference. Now, that's not my salvation, all right? But, but change starts oftentimes in very small ways. So, somebody else? Uh, Carrie and then Cindy. You know, giving no opportunity to the devil, I mean, to keep it simple, it's just the devil knows we're weak. The devil knows he can easily exploit where we justify and rationalize and compromise. And so don't give opportunity to the devil. And the one thing that I don't have in my notes, but I, I read several times, is, is what happens for, in a lot of cases where we lose our temper, is we're like, oh, the devil got me. No, he's looking for the opportunity. You lost your temper. You gave him the opportunity. It's on me that I lost my temper. It's on me that I'm angry. Or when I nurse my anger, cater to my anger. And now I'm giving the devil an open door, but don't blame it on the devil. We, I have plenty of... I find it easy to sin without the devil. Uh, yeah, follow-up. Carrie, and then still, do you have a follow-up? Uh, well, the devil's the roaring lion walking about whom he may devour is kind of implied. That's Peter, I think. Uh, I mean, if you have a cross-reference Bible, somebody does. If you have a cross-reference Bible and there's a more explicit warning, I'm not sure that there is. Uh, Cindy? Well, I felt like I did. I mean, the whole package of... Uh, when you let the sun go down in your anger, you're letting your life be defined by your anger and your opposition and what you're against. So I, I think the concept is anger has to be kept in perspective and checked so that our life, what does go down on us, what, what is supposed to be with us as we lay our head down is trusting God's providence. It's the goodness of God. It's the grace of God. That's what we rest on. That's what I lay my head down on my pillow on. It's the goodness, the grace, the sovereignty, the providence of God, not my anger. So I think it's keeping it in perspective. It's not a literal thing. Like, you should go to I don't take it exactly like that. I mean, it could apply to something like, like that. Like, if I'm at odds with somebody, the Bible does say, expedite that situation and make it right. I think that's true. But I don't, I don't think it necessarily means, like, I can't wait till morning. I need to do this before I go to bed. Yeah. That's why we've been married 40 years. It's working in my favor. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
I take that more of a concept, keeping it in perspective, rather than like this very literal application. Because I, I think if I'm, if I'm angry the way children are exploited in our culture, I don't think that means, oh, now I've got to go to bed and leave it, leave it to rest and not be angered or upset by that at all anymore. If I think about that every day, I'm angry about it every day. But somehow, my perspective with God's providence and grace and gospel has to trump my anger in those situations. I think it's keeping things in perspective. Rick? Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the G.K. Chesterton quote, which is kind of nebulous whether he actually said it. But the idea that, you know, the problem with the world is me. You know, do we have problems in our world? Yeah. And G.K. Chesterton said, you know, the problem with the world, it's me. Somebody else? Uh, Vicki, and then we'll close. It is convicting. I find it very convicting. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much time I think we could spend talking about anger because it's such a common experience, <laughs> and it's so easy to get it wrong. Uh, let's then be dismissed in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit that can take your word and show us things we may not want to see, but by your goodness and grace, we will see them, and we'll bring them to the foot of the cross as well than the one here.